All right, let's keep it going. I'm very happy this person's here. I'm a big fan of their work. Uh, Mike Barthel is the last blogger whose work has appeared in the All, Idolator, Salon, The Village Voice, Elaine, and GQ. He currently lives in Washington, D.C. Everyone give it for Mike Barthel. coming out. I write about music about once a year at this point, so I was glad to have an opportunity to do so today. Um, so this is a piece, a little personal piece. It's more about kind of music in general than a particular band. Anyway, you'll see. <clears throat> uh, music should be harder to talk about. Most of it, after all, is sound, which, like smells or tastes, we lack a common, non-specialized language to discuss in any detail. Sure, for pop music, there's lyrics, but mostly we don't talk about lyrics. Uh, we talk about uh, process stuff, personality stuff, uh, things like that. But that's not exactly music, is it? Uh, it's not sound. We don't really talk about sound much. Okay, sure, there's always music theory. Someone will come out with an article about that every few years. But music theory isn't really a great way to talk about pop music, which is less composed than it is made, constructed piece by piece through experimentation and imitation and ex exploration. For pop, what you care about is whether something sounds good. And sounds good, needless to say, is just a hell of an individual thing. We try to enforce standards for responsible listening you need a deep knowledge of music history, a high-quality audio setup, and no issues with hearing loss that might prevent you from experiencing the rich tapestry of sound. But listening is listening. It's going to happen regardless. It just doesn't always end up in the same place for every person. In my roughly 10 years as a working critic, one of my jobs was to paper over this difference, to help produce something visible and agreed upon to talk about. In talking about what I heard when I listened to music, I could, sometimes, help bridge all these individual differences, beaming my own personal experience of music out into the Borg consciousness of cultural conversation in hopes that it would link up with some other people's individual experiences and coagulate into something that, if you squint, looked like meaning, or at least a narrative. And it worked for a while, close enough for jazz, as my grandpa used to say. But it didn't work so well for me anymore, in part because I've learned way more than I care to about how hearing works. On or about Christmas Day of 2014, three months after we moved to Washington, D.C., my wife Rachel went suddenly and irrevocably deaf. The initial treatment of prednisone injections directly through her eardrum, a steroid that had triggered diabetes in one family member and psychosis in another, made the sound come back for a few days, but it soon left for good. and I found her at dawn sitting in our armchair and looking up details on cochlear implant surgeries. I tried to tell her that of course she'd be able to hear that maybe the sound just needed to be clearer, and I played her Beyonce single ladies through the good stereo, thinking the mix was minimalistic enough, basically just a beat and a vocal, that she'd be able to make it out. But she couldn't and cried. She couldn't hear Beyonce. I can't hear anything, she said. That was true enough. 
According to one chart we consulted after a hearing test, she couldn't hear a My Bloody Valentine show at 20 paces, though she could maybe get a whisper of a chainsaw. But with enough additional signals, shout so she could get the patterns of what you said, let her see your lips move, put the remark in a larger context, maybe do some gesturing. She could understand what you were saying, or at least convincingly fake it. Her brain put all that together into something comprehensible, not the meaning, but close enough for jazz. Still, it was isolating as hell as her, cut off from communication that wasn't a struggle to understand, like, say, the endless questions from a Starbucks barista. Sure, her close friends would be willing to shout their way around the National Mall so she could be in on our jokes, but most people treated, uh, took her difficulty perceiving conversation as ignorance. And sure, it was a little isolating for me, too, having to shout to be half understood by the person I spent my life with. But we kept trying, and we did okay. Rachel had to wait months for the cochlear implant surgery. So in the meantime, they gave her a series of devices that basically just made everything louder, which also meant they made everything sound worse. These worked like an overdrive pedal, which turns the gain up on an audio signal so high that it clips. In-ear amplifiers that cranked up the volume of the external world all the way into the red just to make it slightly comprehensible to her blown-out cochlea. Everyone sounded horrible and cheap to my ears, like a transistor radio halfway between stations. And it hurt her, caused her physical pain. When she would come home, she'd rip the hearing aid off her ear and throw it across the room and sit in silence for a while just to recover. But as much as I hated how shitty these were, it was nice that I could put something in my ear and hear more or less what she was hearing. Um, at first they gave her like a plastic box with a small condenser microphone that aggressively amplified everything and pumped it through headphones. The like cheapest possible headphones they gave her. I don't know why. Anyway, I'd walk around holding the box with the microphone, the headphone cord stretched between us, keeping us close. And I could, if I wanted, put the headphones on and hear it and felt the little like strapping her ears to my body. Before all this, Rachel and I had listened to a lot of music together. We met because I joined a noise band in college with her friend Christy, and as it turned out, Rachel's ex-boyfriend, but that's a story for another time. Rachel had a binder full of punk CDs from her teen years, but the one stuck in the boombox, her boombox, the first semester we got together, was the For the Heart disc of George Michael's Greatest Hits, uh, which I hated at first, but eventually won me over for maybe obvious reasons. Uh, she gave me Purple Rain as a gift, at one point properly aghast that I had never heard it, and I can trace a lot of my subsequent career as a pop critic to that act. We went to a lot of shows after we moved to New York City, Courtney Love during a particularly rough week in about 2005, and the Scissor Sisters and the Pixies when they reunited and shared new music and argued about it and did a lot of karaoke, and it's one of the many things that brought us together maybe one of the biggest things. We had different tastes, but eventually they became pretty similar, except for Taylor Swift, which I love and she does not. When you spend your life with someone, you maybe try to stay independent for a while and so bounce off the other person like two sine waves out of phase, together and then apart on different nights. But over time, you start to notice those bounces describing a shadow in your life, an absence, something you want to fill in, something you want to make whole. After her first cochlear implant was turned on, about six months after she went fully deaf, her hearing improved dramatically. Cochlear implants essentially provide an input jack into your inner ear. 
Uh, a surgeon threads a thin wire into your cochlea fitted with electrodes that sit inside the fluid and send electrical impulses to your auditory nerves. It replicates what hair cells called cilia do, vibrate in response to a specific frequency and a sound wave coming into your inner ear. It's basically like a piano where the sound wave goes over it and hits the right key. The other end of the implant connects to a magnet sitting subcutaneously under your scalp, which connects through the skin to a processor sitting on your hair, which houses a microphone, a processing chip, and a magnet that latches on and transmits information to the implant. But here's the crazy thing. Well, one of the crazy things, besides the fact that you have a line-in jack to your brain, you have about 3,500 hair cells in your inner ear, or do until you start going to concerts, uh, 3,500 different resonant frequencies to trigger, like keys on a keyboard, providing a rich, full rainbow of sound. The cochlear implant has 11 electrodes. Imagine if you had to compose music using only 11 keys. And yet the brain still manages to provide you a rich, full spectrum of sound, eventually. The trick is to train your brain to hear things right, to trick your brain into taking these partial, distorted signals and perceiving them as rich, full sounds. The audiologist can change the implant settings to make certain electrodes fire more or less strongly or at different rates, uh, or even turn some off to simulate the tones in between where the electrodes are. Nearly everything you can do with audio processing can be done with the implants too, changing mic patterns or compression or EQ. This can have some weird effects. Rachel was somewhat unusual in that she went fully deaf all at once after decades of hearing and then got an implant five months later, so she mostly remembered what the world sounded like and insisted that her audiologist kept tweaking the settings until they sounded correct. But after every attempt, there would inevitably be something wrong, and since there was always some time between appointments, she would live with these weird audio artifacts for weeks at a time. For a while, the world might be pitched up a few semitones, and I'd sound like Mickey Mouse. Then she'd get tuned and everything would be death metal, down a few semitones. Or she'd go into grocery stores and the motor sounds of coolers would be so overwhelming that she couldn't hear anything else. The mix was off. The world was badly EQ'd. In contrast to when I'd be able to just pop her hearing aid into my ear and hear the signals she was being fed, now she had to tell me what was happening. When she'd had the headphones box and the hearing aid, that was a system I knew how to work with as someone who'd done a little home recording. I could hang a condenser mic from our chandelier and run it through a mixer to boost the volume at the dinner table in a more gentle way. But with the implants, all my attempts at improvements fell flat. I couldn't seem to understand how they worked, how sound worked within them. Of course, she wanted to hear music again, or I thought she wanted to hear music again, or it was important to me that she hear music again. And the best way to do that was through training her ear, which really means training her brain. She listened to things she knew well, but also things she didn't. I tried to help, making a playlist of songs with isolated instruments to see which she could hear better or worse, though it mostly turned out everything sounded like shit if she'd never heard it before. Her brain was looking for something it already knew. Nothing quite made sense to me. I'd played three ascending notes on a piano, dun-dun-dun, and she'd hear them in a totally different order, dun-dun-dun, and I never could figure out why. I kept pursuing a clean sound, thinking that her implants were distorting the signal in the same way the hearing aids had been. We bought a fancy new stereo and speakers, but everything still had to travel through the air and into the microphones of her processors, which dampened the effect. 
Everything sounded bad. When Kendrick Lamar announced the gig with the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center, I figured this would be perfect. Music she was familiar with in an acoustically considered space, one that was looped for hearing aids to boot. to matter too much. Everything sounded bad. At one of her appointments, we both filled out surveys assessing how well we thought the therapy was going. I gave it decent marks. She rated it near the bottom. I was shocked, and I felt cut off from what was in her head. I tried making music again to make the cleanest sound I could, something that would sound good to her. I'd already traded my big noisy amp for a small clean one when I moved to D.C., but I put away the distortion pedals and reverb and delay to just make clean, straightforward lines with maybe some horns and drums. But they didn't sound good. Clean isn't what I'm good at, having been in, you know, noisy indie bands. And anyway, no instrument sounded worse to her than electric guitar, the thing I was best at. Through her implants, it was electrical processing on electrical processing. What ended up working was the stuff I never would have expected. The first new song, that I remembered here hearing clearly with an implant was DJ Assault's Ass and Titties, uh, which I played for her through the terrible iPhone speakers. She got it anyway. I guess it's not a difficult song to get. What really did the trick was a pair of headphones so gaudy that Jason from The Good Place might be embarrassed by them. We'd gone to a musical instrument store to check out some gear, and when I was testing pedals, she tried out the display of DJ headphones. She strapped one on, hit play on a test CD, and heard the Star Wars Imperial March pretty clearly. It was the opposite of everything I'd expected. Making sounds more natural and cleaner didn't matter. All that mattered was pumping it into her microphones as directly as possible and letting the system do its magic. Clean didn't work out for live sound either. After a few years of not going to shows, a friend's band came through town and we checked it out, and somehow a noisy rock combo in a basement venue sounded pretty good. We went to a Yoko Ono tribute at the Hirshhorn and saw Moore Mother and Kim Gordon doing Yoko's uh, scream piece. <laughs> and after she said we should start a noise band. Of course, she still can't hear, take off the processors, and we're back to gestures. Side note, we should really learn sign language. Uh, her perception of speech, even in noisy environments, is very strong at this point. There's very little repetition these days. But the experience of hearing she's achieved, and it is very much an achievement, her audiologist at one point told her she had a highly developed auditory cortex, which she wrote down and showed to me, is the result of her brain taking signals that I know with absolute certainty do not sound like what I hear and turning them into an experience that's at least familiar and doesn't totally suck. Close enough for jazz. We never did redo that survey asking each of us how good her hearing is, but there's no way she's rating hers much above a five these days, even now, when she can easily pass for hearing. But still, a five, it's better than a zero, and it's better than a three, which is where she was a few months ago. That's good. I'm happy about that, though of course it doesn't really matter what I, whether I am or not. In her head, things sound okay now. There's a strange little miracle happening in her brain every time it takes the junk getting pushed in and turns it into a not totally unpleasant sound. I'm grateful for that, grateful that our mysterious temperamental systems of silicon and flesh can do such magic tricks. It's ridiculous, but I mix that experience of walking around with a headphone cord stretched between us, of being able to put the headphones on myself and hear what she's hearing. It's a closed system now, a black box, and it sounds better to hear her the more it's contained, the more it skips the space between us to go directly to her nerves. 
When I think about music now, I think about the fact that all of us have these black boxes and we're either unable or reluctant to talk about the possibility that things sound differently to us than to other people. One major issue in getting hearing loss treated is that patients often wait until it's almost totally gone because it goes away so slowly that they feel the problem isn't their head, it's the world. All these black boxes, each with their own inputs and processing algorithms and faults and filters, should make it impossible to have any real conversations about music, at least in a this sounds good kind of way. But if there's a saving grace of these black boxes, it's that when we get in a group and listen to music together, it doesn't seem to matter much. The disconnected galaxies in each of our heads follow the same paths, obey the same laws of motion. I don't know what you're hearing and you don't know what I'm hearing, but the magic trick of good music is that it lines us up like magnetized atoms in a field, inducing us to move together. I remember once doing this meditation exercise where a bunch of us stood in a room and closed our eyes and listened to some sort of new agey music. And then we all opened our eyes and saw everyone swaying in unison. I hadn't even realized I was swaying. It felt like a trick, but maybe it's just a stripped down version of what music always does. That's maybe why we create that shared meeting, even if we can't talk about it directly. Maybe that's what all that jibber jabber is when we argue on the internet about music. Maybe it's a ritual, conjuring an illusion, pretending we can see a shared meaning just to have something to come together around. A gathering point, a space for the magic to happen. An invocation, summoning those predisposed to connect with this particular sound, each in their own individual way. Fooling our brains into thinking we can see all those other brains out there, that we can peer into the black box. Substituting a reflection for transparency, seeing others when we're really just seeing ourselves until it becomes real, until the connection really is there, even if we can't put into words what it is or what it means, and then standing in that space, swaying for as long as the spell lasts. Sometimes with Rachel, I can forget all of it. Sometimes in the kitchen, I'll hum a little tune and we'll grab each other and start dancing perfectly in rhythm. Maybe then it's my brain that needs to catch up, that needs to see that we are hearing the same thing still that whatever threads connected us are still there, that there's always been space between us, but that it's a distance we've always closed. Thank you. Transmission Production.